0: Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer, using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician, with support from the Society for Integrative Oncology an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. I'm really excited for our guest today, Jennifer McQuaid. She's an assistant professor and physician scientist in melanoma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, She has a very interesting history. She completed a master's in science in clinical and translational science in MD Anderson's advanced scholars program. She also holds a master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine, after spending time in China as a Fulbright Fellow. Her research includes lifestyle factors and their influence on melanoma biology and the anti-tumor immune response, as well as integrative therapies for symptom control in cancer. Today, we'll be talking about the microbiome and its impact on cancer and the therapy for cancer, as well as translational uh, research in integrative oncology. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Really excited to talk to you.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited as well.
1: Well, I wanted to just jump right into it. So I know you have a really fascinating background, and let's just start there. I wanted to ask you what led you to being an oncologist and then developing, uh, you know, you have a a variety of interests, um, but just reading your bio you ended up going to China and got a master's in traditional Chinese medicine. I want to know about all of that. And then how you started doing research um, in, sure. in you know, you have a variety of research, obviously, but some of it is related to integrative oncology and the microbiome.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I was one of those people that wanted to be a doctor from, you know, the time I was five. Um, and I always said that, but it was about a fascination with The human body. It wasn't necessarily about the taking care of patients, which I guess makes sense. Five-year-olds don't think in that way. Um, But then I got to college, and um, and there were so many interesting things to learn. And I felt very confined by the pre-med curriculum um, and kind of the that cutthroat competitiveness as well um, within the pre-med student population. And so I. I actually went to my advisor and he said, you know, you've got, you've got plenty of credits, you know, next semester, you know, don't take another chemistry elective, take something that you know nothing about, but are really interested in. Um, and so I took a course on Chinese political history um, and I just found it fascinating. And um, at the end, I went up and I said, you know, I want to, I want to uh, learn Chinese and go to, and go to China. And he was like... Okay, why don't let's take a step back a little bit. But I, I took a year of college Chinese, and then I moved to um, I moved to Taiwan. Really, not sure what at this point what I wanted to do if I was going to come back to medicine or not. Um, and I spent um, almost two years there studying Chinese and teaching English. And I was actually just about to leave um, and spend a year backpacking. Um, and when I called home my mom had just been diagnosed with breast cancer, which she is fine. Now it was um, a stage two breast cancer, she had a mastectomy, chemotherapy, um, radiation, and she is just fine now, but you know, I obviously wasn't going to go gallivanting around the world while she was going through these treatments. Um, and so I moved to Houston actually where they had moved while I was living overseas. Um, and Spent that time with um, with her, so that was uh, twenty two years ago in June. Wow.
3: Um,
2: I uh, actually ended up um, during that time again, still not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but maybe thinking business. Um, I took a job at Enron and then at UBS Warburg and energy derivatives, and it was interesting but um, not very fulfilling, and so. I started exploring the idea again of going back um, to medical school, but um, I was also really interested from my time in Taiwan in integrative medicine and specifically in acupuncture. And when I had taken my mom to the the oncologist and I was concerned, she was about to start chemo, is she going to have nausea and vomiting? I know that chemotherapy can be effective, excuse me, acupuncture can be effective. Um, in that setting, I said, okay, let's go down to a, uh, to Chinatown. We'll find a, you know, find an acupuncturist and, and see if there's some integrative medicine that could, um, that could help you. And we went down there and he said, well, you haven't started chemo. So you don't have, <laughs> you don't have nausea, vomiting. You don't really have any, you know, we don't need acupuncture right now, but we'll see if we can do it later. But in the meantime, I wanted her to take these herbs.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I said, well, what's in them? And so he tells me the names in Chinese, never heard of them. He gives me, you know, a book and it has, you know, the Latin names, never heard of them. And I said, what do they do? And he said, well, they tonify blood. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: What the heck is tonify blood? I know she had to stop her gingo biloba because of, you know, bleeding risk before surgery. So what does this mean? And I said, do you have any literature on this being safe to combine with chemotherapy? And He, you know, hands me a a book and, you know, it's all preclinical studies and in five mice that did this. But my question was, is this safe to use with chemotherapy? And I knew, obviously, the other resource would be her oncologist, who was phenomenal. But I also knew that her oncologist likely didn't know about these medications and that the no, don't use them would likely come from the, I don't know, rather than There is literature suggesting, you know, yes or no.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, And so I said, you know, I have a degree in biology. I speak Chinese. I can figure this out. We'll take them. And I went home and I got on the internet, and it was, you know, all I could find was sales and marketing, no actual um, resources. So, with this background, when I was starting to explore going back to medical school, I actually saw that there was um, a, a school of Chinese medicine here in Houston. And so I started taking courses there in the evenings. Mm. Um, I thought it was really fascinating. Um, And what I learned at that time was that I loved patient care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really enjoyed that interaction. Um, But I still, in my training, wasn't getting a tremendous amount of, um, of evidence. I was learning a bit more about how to do acupuncture instead of specifically learning about you know what the studies were either supporting or refuting um, the use, and I wasn't sure at the time if that was because the literature didn't exist or I wasn't being taught it or wasn't reliable. And so, in the setting of this, um, you know, I decided that if I if I really wanted if I was interested in you know integrative medicine. Um, for cancer patients, that what I wanted to do is I wanted to become the oncologist that that did that research and used my background and training and kind of brought together both worlds. wow, um,
1: yeah, so yeah. that was your first foray into integrative oncology with with your mm-hmm. mom in the center of it. I think it's yeah. fascinating. I always ask people kind of how they started because most of us had some kind of inspiration and it, it's it's you know, you're no different that you went through years and years of training after you had that initial kind of seed of inspiration and, and look at you now, you know, you've really kind of um putting it all into into practice, which I think is is great. Um, I want to dive into kind of some of your research because uh, there's yeah. just a, a lot to talk about and I think it's really fascinating and informative. So um, I know that you you probably do research in a lot of other areas as well. You're uh, you're a melanoma specialist um, and obviously a lot of your research is related to melanoma and immunotherapy, et cetera. Uh, But for integrative oncology, I think our audience will be very interested in some of your research regarding lifestyle and the microbiome. So let's talk about that. Okay. And for anybody who doesn't know, um, tell us a little bit about the microbiome, its importance and kind of some of the ways that it can be modified, uh, you know, through, through various factors.
2: Okay. Okay. So, um, so the microbiome is basically these trillions and trillions of microorganisms that live on us and in us, and so these are what are called, you know, commensal bacteria. So they're kind of good bacteria, right? And then we have our pathogenic bacteria that we try to fight, um, fight off. But we essentially have this symbiotic relationship um, with these microorganisms, bacteria, well studied. We're starting to learn a little bit more about kind of fungi and, um, and viruses. So we all have distinct microbiomes and we have distinct microbiomes within each niche, our skin, our mucosal linings, um, and um, even now we're finding out in tumors as well. Um, but the part of the microbiome that's really been the most well-studied and specifically with relation to human health is the gut microbiome. Um, And the gut microbiome has a very intimate relationship with the immune system. So you have the lumen of the intestines. You have all these bacteria that are there. You want to keep the good bacteria, get rid of the bad bacteria, and have your mucosal layer. Um, And the microbiome actually feeds the enterocytes to help form that nice thick mucosal layer. And then right on the other side, you have kind of the mucosal immune system itself the draining lymph nodes, and then it impacts systemic immunity as well. Um, So there had previously been quite a lot of work around looking at um, the microbiome and and autoimmune diseases Mm. um, and potentially things that could kind of set off um, that inflammatory cascade.
1: Like ulcerative colitis or stuff like that,
2: yeah, like ulcerative colitis or even things like right? I mean, most will study for sure with you know with with kind of the diseases of the gut. Um, you know, but even allergic diseases or other autoimmune diseases such as like rheumatoid arthritis. So um, how do you
1: define like a good or bad bacteria?
2: Mm, that's a good. So there are some things um that are clearly pathogenic. And there are some things that are clearly beneficial. So, for example, um, Fusobacterium um, has specifically been linked to risk of uh, colorectal cancer, um, and there are very clear mechanisms that have worked, been worked out in terms of um, the pathogenesis of that. There's, as far as the good bacteria, and we'll we'll come back to this a little bit. Um, so good bacteria um, tend to be associated with health as opposed to disease across multiple different disease types. And there was a really, really beautiful paper that was just published um, out of the Netherlands this week. Um, they looked at, I think it was like 8,600 individuals um, you know, in multi-generational families And they asked them about all the stuff, right? All the diet, all the exposures, early childhood, everything. And then they captured all of their diseases and comorbidities. And what's really interesting when you look at that correlation heat map is that the bad stuff and the good stuff line up across the diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So you have bad stuff that's associated, you know, fusobacteria may be very specific for colorectal cancer, but if you're looking at kind of the overall ecosystem and not necessarily pathogenic bacteria that we know, you know, directly cause an issue. But those associations, you know, the bad stuff is associated with, you know, um, bowel diseases and with heart attacks and with strokes. And and so there does seem to be this kind of overall good microbiome. I mean, this is
1: where it gets very interesting, though, because, you know, it's, it's hard to, because this is a relatively, I don't know how new this concept is. I mean, how long have have has the microbiome been on the radar?
2: Ah, oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um I mean, there was the microbiome, but then there was really the development of our ability to deeply characterize it. And that was, you know, kind of um late nineties, early two yeah. thousands.
1: Because I think the the you know, you it's it's easy to kind of keep going in this direction and start, you know, it's fascinating. And you know yet, in our medical training and stuff i I did not learn a lot about the microbiome back then. and um you know we're thought we're taught that cancer is partly from you know your inherited risk, and then you know a lot of it recently is about lifestyle, smoking, obesity, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you know, how much does the microbiome influence that? And obviously it would be different for different cancers. You know, you're a melanoma specialist. We think of sun exposure and yeah. um, your, you know, your race uh, as probably the primary factors and, you know, where you live, et cetera. But a lot of it yeah. is is uh, sun exposure. So that may be yeah. different in something like that versus colorectal cancer. You know, how much of an influence do you think the microbiome has in in various cancers? And do we have a good sense of you know, where it's most impactful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, where, as far as where it's most impactful, I would think that those are the, those are the luminal, the gut luminal malignancies where we have a direct interaction between those microbes and the mucosal surface, right? Right. And there's clear causal links with carcinogenesis. Now, again, very unlikely that somebody's you know colon cancer is strictly caused by fusobacterium, right? But the other part of it as well, and most most colorectal cancer patients don't have that fusobacterium. So people get cancer for different reasons, and it can be because of their genetics. It can be because of the environment. The environment then influences the microbiome, right? So that exposure, so the diet, obesity, all of these other things that are linked to colorectal cancer, the microbiome is kind of an integrator of those things. Now, is the microbiome causal? Does it mediate that effect? You know, there's some data su- suggested it is, but the question where we are with a lot of the microbiome field is how much of it is an association versus... Um, you know, versus truly causal and how much of these things are kind of a, is this a bellwether of, you know, good human, good health, meaning higher socioeconomic status, right? Diet, you know, exercise and with humans, it's really hard to pull all those things apart sure. because patients that have higher socioeconomic status, right? They're also, they're the ones that are eating quinoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, mouse models there um certainly become very helpful in that. But I mean speaking of those and or H. pylori, right, on the side. Right. That's that's clearly causal.
1: I mean, speaking of, I want to ask you later about uh transplant. But speaking of mm-hmm. mouse models, I mean I've seen studies that are fascinating regarding transplant, fecal transplant or microbiome transplants in in mouse models and responses in the in the tumors, right? I mean, is that response to therapy or does the cancer itself, I mean, there's, there's obviously mouse models with obesity, um, which is fascinating too. And it starts making you think, you know, is the microbiome that central to this process, you know?
2: Yeah. So, um, so if we go back, so let's just take, you know, kind of response to immunotherapy. Um, so right. Immunotherapy, these checkpoint inhibitors completely revolutionized cancer treatment. They work by essentially, you know, uh, taking the brakes off of the immune system and, and now allowing it to go in and recognize um, cancers. Now, when we do mouse models, you know, what we do is we buy mice either from, you know, Jackson lab or from Taconic lab or kind of the two big ones. And we buy these mice. If you give the mouse, if you inject them um, in the subcutaneous tissue or somewhere else, right, with a tumor cell line, and now you give them chemotherapy, it generally doesn't matter whether you got it from Jackson Lab or a Taconic Lab. They're genetically identical. I mean, these are these are not wild mice. They're genetically identical um, C57 Black Six mice. So Tom Gajewski at University of Chicago, um, what he saw is that. When he got the Jackson lab mice and he gave them, you know, cancer and then gave them immunotherapy, their tumors shrunk, but the ones from Taconic didn't shrink. Hmm. And was like, you know, they're the same, they're, they have the same genetics. I'm injecting them with the same tumor, different than humans where there's tons of heterogeneity. So, why were they responding differently? So, he starts to think, you know, they've kind of come from different environments. Environment impacts the microbiome. And sure enough, they have very distinct microbiome profiles. So, now when he took the Jackson lab poop and did a fecal microbiota transplant into the Deconic lab mice, he was able to transmit responsiveness to immunotherapy via this fecal microbiota transplant. Wow. Right. Now we're getting at causality. so, so then the question became, you know, is this relevant in humans? So this was, um, so this is back in 2015. Mm-hmm. So then three groups simultaneously, Laurent Zipbogel's group in France and Tom's group at University of Chicago and Jen Wargo at MD Anderson started collecting fecal specimens on our patients that were starting immunotherapy. And. Um, what they each, um, saw published in, you know, papers in science in 2018 was that there were, um, distinct signatures between responders versus non-responders, to immunotherapy. And now again, if you took actually this time the human poop, and now you go into a germ free mouse, so a mouse that has grown up without a microbiome you do a fecal microbiota transplant into that mouse, and then you treat that mouse with the poop from a non-responder human, then that mouse's tumor will not shrink. Hmm. Whereas if you treat it with poop from a responder human, now their their tumor shrinks with immunotherapy. So yeah,
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that in a second because you've done a lot of awesome research with immunotherapy and the microbiome. Just to uh, finish up this topic, I'm I'm curious about whether we know, you know, related to diet. I know that you've uh, been getting into to research with nutrition. You know, how much does our farming practices, you know, you know, mm-hmm. antibiotics have an effect on the microbiome um, temp- temporarily? Right. Um, So if somebody just got antibiotics, whether they're on therapy, whether they're not, it has an effect on the microbiome, and there's some implication potentially on response to therapy, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what about, you know, because there's all these questions about why, you know, somebody who moves from Japan to the US, you know, suddenly has, uh, you know, an increased risk of breast cancer if they they spend their teenage years here, for example. Mm -hmm. So we know Mm -hmm. that and I think people have talked about obesity and stuff like that, but that's not necessarily the whole answer. And there's all these unanswered questions, right? Yeah. So, you know, I I think the microbiome is one potential, you know, source to look at. Um, Do we know anything about, you know, regionally uh, around the world, what kind of farming practices have an influence on what's called, quote unquote, a healthy microbiome?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I mean, specifically, right, pesticides and, and kind of the use of, um, of the antibiotics and farm and farm, right. And then if you have organic farming, um, versus inorganic and so far, it really hasn't been, um, kind of neatly untangled.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, but certainly plenty of reasons to think that it, that it would influence it. I think the other part, um, you know, beyond the, so beyond the farming practices, then kind of our, our processed foods. And so here, I'm not even talking about, you know, right, we all know that people, you know, when you leave from an agrarian place, and you come, you know, to the US, you're eating more red meat, you're eating, you know, less whole foods. And so certainly, that's going to change the microbiome. Um, but also, the additives, that we put in there, and so specifically, there emulsifiers,
3: mm.
2: um, which we use to make many processed foods more palatable. Those have actually been shown to um, really have an impact on the microbiome in a negative way.
1: And how quickly, you know, is it modifiable? You know, I mean, I've heard different things, but I'm just curious because some of this, like, take me through a timeline. Like, you know, obviously, you get a lot of your microbiome if you're breastfeeding. Right. That's your first introduction. Uh, or if you're getting breast milk some other uh some other way. Um, but basically you have your childhood uh, you know, coming from your mother a lot of times, or but your childhood microbiome, then you, you know, you have your lifestyle directed influence on that, right? How much of it is baked mm-hmm. in if you're an adult, let's say you're a woman who's 45 and has breast cancer, um, mm-hmm. you know, how modifiable is your microbiome how quickly does it modify and then you know mm-hmm. um how long does that last do you have to keep keep stay on the same diet
2: yeah so um so a few things so one is we know that the core microbiome in an individual is remarkably stable over time um if we are not actively trying to perturb it or maybe not actively if we're not passively perturbing it say for example with broad spectrum antibiotics right Now, if we try to favorably modulate the microbiome, if we do a fecal microbiota transplant, it's almost immediate. Um, If we are using diet, um, then there have been previous controlled feeding studies that basically show that within about two weeks, Mm -hmm. um, we can modify either the microbiome or what actually might be more important is its metabolic output, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have these different bacteria and I might have, you know, the particular clade of bacteria that is involved in fiber fermentation. For me, you might have a slightly different one. When we increase the fiber in our diet, you may more selectively bloom that one that's already the dominant population in yours. I might bloom this one. So it's not so much about the specific bugs. And that's what that That paper, where they kind of show these, um, you know, that a lot of bacteria, good bacteria associated with health, bad bacteria associated with many diseases, those good bacteria are also associated with each other. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about the ecosystem and not about individual bacteria, but it's also um, about what they are doing and their function there. So, um, So, if so, we can change the microbiome in about two weeks um however yes to sustain that change in the microbiome we have to sustain the diet and
1: the um, diet it, the diet that's been shown to be helpful i mean i was just reading some of your papers before is mm-hmm. things like high fiber plant based am i right
2: yeah yeah so it's you know it's nothing it's nothing radical it's the same exact diet that you know is is the american cancer society american institute of cancer research you know recommendation for cancer prevention Um, it is, you know, the same as the American Heart Association diet. It's the same diet that's, you know, recommended by the World Health Organization. So it's not a magic diet. Um, it's just, you know, eat food, mostly plants.
1: Okay. And then what about, I'm curious about probiotics as well. And we'll talk about this in the context of immunotherapy, but, you know, probiotics are kind of like a, a huge fad nowadays. Um, it's not regulated necessarily. There's a lot of variety in what people get. And then you also can get probiotics from your diet. You know, and I'm just curious about mm. the influence of all that. Like, I think we've taken it just, you know, just taking it for granted that you have all these probiotics in yogurt, for example. Yeah. Um, You know, what, do, do you think that's a positive thing? Is it more complicated uh, in different settings? You know, is it, yeah. you know, a lot of times when we talk about uh, natural products, for example... I think we kind of ignore whether somebody's eating turmeric in their diet, you know because mm. the the dose is limited. Is it the mm-hmm. same with probiotics where you kind of ignore whether somebody's you know eating kimchi um, rather than taking uh, a pill?
2: Yeah, so I think you're making really important distinctions there between you know supplement based and um and diet based. So the first thing, if we think about probiotics is what are the bugs that we're giving somebody and are those the right bugs? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that 90% of the bacteria that live in our gut are anaerobic bacteria. They're very difficult to culture, right? The things that are easy to culture, are those aerobic bacteria, which happen to be the same things that, you know, help make yogurt and sauerkraut. It's the stuff that, you know, humans have been using for thousands of years. Now, if you distill it down and you put it in a pill and you're giving it at megadoses of, you know, colony forming units, that those bacteria can actually then start to crowd out some of the other good bacteria. And there was a really beautiful study um, that was published, I think, in Cell um, by the the Israeli group Ron Siegel's group. And what they, what they found is they took, because then the question is, okay, what about antibiotics (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) after antibiotics? Should I be taking, you know, probiotics? So they took humans and mice, they gave them broad spectrum antibiotics, and then they did one of three things. They gave them a fecal microbiota transplant from their pre antibiotic specimen immediately restore their ecosystem. They, do nothing. Mm -hmm. And over time, we restore our ecosystem. We like homeostasis and we kind of return to that. Um, And that takes about six to eight weeks. Um, Then they gave them single strain probiotics and that group actually had the slowest recovery, Mm. And they took the filtrate um, out from, you know, um, uh, kind of a co culture. They took the filtrate out and, you know, then put that together with other bugs. And it was basically the filtrate from that bacteria. So it's secreting something that was actually inhibiting the growth of other
3: hmm.
2: good bugs. So, kind of competitive exclusion. Hmm. Now, um, so then, yes, the question becomes, what about yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut and all this? And based on that stuff, what I previously told my patients is, you know, if you like yogurt and you like sauerkraut, you know, then eat those. But, you know, don't go sitting there eating, you know, six, eight servings a day to try to change your microbiome. Now, I've changed my tune. There was a really, really nice paper, Um, that was just published by, uh, Justin Sonnenberg's, um, group at, uh, Stanford. And what they did is they did, they added high fermented food, um, foods, high fermented, yes, high fermented foods to people's diet. Um, and they targeted actually six servings a day, which is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. They ate their they were allowed to eat their normal diet. And they gave them instructions, you know, on what high fermented foods are, which is basically that whole section of whole foods. Right. Um, and you know, they could choose sauerkraut or choose gutter. They could choose yogurt or kefir or whatever. So what they found with that study is that they actually increased the diversity of the microbiome. Wow. And So then they took those foods and they cultured the bacteria that are present in those foods. And these are naturally fermented foods, right? So they're not single strain, they're Mm -hmm. multi-strain, but again, it's an ecosystem that is working together. And the other part of it is now you're providing both the probiotic, the bacteria, but also the prebiotic, Mm -hmm. right? So the cabbage, the fiber that it is eating. And so so then you say, okay, well, you increase that diversity. Is it just all those bacteria that you just ingested? And that was, it was not, right? They were actually making the overall ecosystem more healthy and rich as well. Um, Fascinating. So that's kind of one of the next studies I want to do is to look at that. <laughs> and...
1: Yeah. I mean, this is all so impactful, right? Because we just don't know unless you study it. Um, I want to get into the immunotherapy side of it yeah. because I mean and forgive me I, I don't know if there's been as much research in chemo because I, I know that you've talked about immunotherapy. Um mm-hmm. so you let me know if if there's you know studies that show an impact in chemotherapy the same way. But the immunotherapy studies I I think are are very interesting. And yes, immunotherapy is used in a majority of of cancers almost now it started with melanoma and renal cell um, but now is used in uh, probably a majority of cancers in some way in terms of checkpoint inhibitors. And um, you know, tell us a little bit about what you've found uh, and what is currently being studied um, in terms of the impact of, you know, microbiome changes, uh, differences in diversity, um, and then we can get into, you know, impacts on probiotics and those kind of things. Because I think that those things, first of all, have a direct impact on what we do in integrative oncology. Mm. And I think integrative oncology is this kind of, you know, somewhat, sometimes vague uh, field where I think many of us, when we think about the microbiome, that's one area that we really feel like we want to, you know, kind of really focus on, you know, probably mm. more than than other clinicians. Um, but it's not entirely clear yet how this translates, um, you know, and I know that this kind of research has a very clear, you know, directive, at least in terms of some of the impact Mm -hmm. on people who have, who are on certain therapies.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, we, you know, just kind of that, that idea too, of the integrative oncology community, right. Where we always want is kind of, you know, is, 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 is more rigor and, Mechanism, mm-hmm. right? And I think the microbiome has actually lent really a lot of credence to the type of research that we do around, you know, diet, right? We're not hand waving. There's there's a very measurable thing um, that we can change and that, you know, outside of a, you know, of our hands and diet hands, you know, just with the fecal microbiota transplant, you can change it. So now it becomes all of, it becomes relevant again. Yep. Um, so with, um, so with chemotherapy, you're right. So most of the research has been done with immunotherapy, but actually first not with checkpoint inhibitors, but actually, um, with, um, stem cell transplant, really kind of our original immunotherapy. And that was really, um, brilliant work that was um, um, led by um, Marcel Van Brink at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering many years ago. Um, And essentially showing that those patients with a higher diversity um, of their microbiome um, had improved outcomes in the form of decreased transplant related mortality um, and decreased risks of GVHD. Mm -hmm. And so um, now, in that setting, right, these patients are slammed by antibiotics, frequent hospitalization. That might be a setting actually where the diet's not even as important. It's mm-hmm. more about you know, kind of these other exposures. Um Some data in chemotherapy and some in radiation, those are mostly kind of smaller um, studies. Um, where people have really been interested is, um, is with the checkpoint inhibitors and really kind of coming out of that, that early mouse work that I was telling you about. Um, So essentially, yeah, the research that, um, that, that we've been doing is again, looking at bacteria associated with response versus non-response to immunotherapy. Um, In the MD Anderson cohort, then um, those beneficial bacteria are really bacteria that are, have known roles in fiber fermentation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So bacteria that have known roles in fiber fermentation. Now, again, going back, the bacteria that we see associated with response in our U S cohort are not the same as those associated with response in the French cohort and then the university of Chicago um, cohort. And so, you know, again, we kind of come back to this, what is a good bacteria, bad bacteria, The ecosystem what it's doing, et cetera. Um, but essentially we so Jen had initially published um a paper in 43 patients treated with immunotherapy looking at um associations between um these bacteria and response we expanded that um and um published work in um in science on christmas eve last year actually that um, then showed that in 293 patients treated, treated with systemic therapy with melanoma, that we again saw, um, the same, um, kind of fiber fermenting bacteria floating up to the top in terms of response to checkpoint blockade. Mm-hmm. So then the question was, okay, these are associated with fiber intake in healthy populations is diet important in, you know, advanced cancer patients receiving treatment. and there's some reasons again, kind of from the if we just think about it, why it might not be, right? We all you know, is it is it is it is cancer and all of our treatments and um all of the exposures and the antibiotics that is that just going to completely outweigh everything? Um, so we started, we integrated a lifestyle survey mm-hmm. in with our um, with our microbiome collection. And what we found is that our patients that are consuming sufficient fiber um, actually have a higher chance of responding to the immunotherapy, prolonged progression-free survival. Now, again, as we talked about, you know, that's, that's correlation and not causation. We did control for basic tumor, tumor characteristics and things that are prognostic in melanoma Um, the association held true. But then importantly, we also then went back into a mouse model, um, working with Giorgio Trincieri's lab at the NCI. And there, it turns out, right, mouse chow is actually a beautiful source of fiber. It's all whole grains. Mm. And so the way you do fiber studies of mice is you fiber-deprive them, and now you take it down to 2% fiber um, and kind of a purified ingredient diet. And so now you give the mouse the high fiber diet, um, or, um, the fiber deprived diet, give them cancer or treat them with immunotherapy. And the first thing that you see is that, um, dietary fiber change very rapidly and reproducibly shifts the gut microbiome, you know, in, in these preclinical models, they are much simpler creatures than we are, um, but within a few days. Hmm. Um, Now, when you treat the mice with immunotherapy, the mice who have the high fiber diet, this is a model where we know it is responsive to immunotherapy. And sure enough, those mouses, those mice's tumors, mice tumors respond to immunotherapy. However, um, those that had the fiber deprived diet, their response is significantly abrogated.
3: And
2: hmm. so when you repeat the experiment and you do this in germ-free mice without a microbiome, then you do not see that same effect. So suggesting again, because fiber can do lots of other good things. So this suggests that this is actually microbiome mediated
1: and you've done studies uh, and I've seen some of them that you can really look at predominant bacterial strains in the in the gut and show a significantly uh, different response, whether it's toxicity from immunotherapy versus Mm -hmm. response, which, I mean, opens up a whole bunch of questions about, you know, someday, should we be measuring, you know, patients before they get their therapy Mm -hmm. and maybe even modifying their microbiome to, you know, modify that response if we want to... Because, you know, as as a clinician, I'm sure you're in the same boat as me. When I'm giving somebody combination immunotherapy, I give them the potential risk of toxicity, but I don't actually know who's going to get, you know, uh, colitis or any of those side effects. And I also don't know who that patient is who's going to get a complete response, right? Which is obviously what we want to know. And, you know, we have things like PD-1 levels in certain tumors and there's tumor-specific things, but this seems like a Mm -hmm. very, very important uh, host factor that yeah. uh, could be modifiable, uh, obviously.
2: Yeah. So I mean, so again, that's it's kind of uh, the microbiome is both a biomarker and a target, which is which is pretty cool. So we can modify. it. I mean, we can't change, right? I can't change my germline genome.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I don't want to change the tumor genome. I just want to eradicate the tumor. Um, but this we can actually um, modify. But yeah, are we at the point? where we can you know profile a patient's microbiome and you know then say we're now gonna do this this personalized intervention for your microbiome that's where I want to go
3: mm-hmm.
2: we're not there yet so we're still you know we're still learning again is it the specific taxa is it the function is it the ecosystem um what is the best way to modify the microbiome we also need kind of real-time data, right? I mean, ideally, I would love to have that data before I start immunotherapy and then change their microbiome, prime it, prime the immune system, and then come in with immunotherapy. Um, but, you know, we, we don't get 24-hour turnaround on microbiome sequencing, much less, um, for um, you know for, our, for our tumor sequencing either, right? So.
1: so I have some follow-up questions. I mean, one, one thing first of all, is probiotics. What is mm-hmm. the deal on probiotics? and it, I mean, specifically with patients getting immunotherapy? I, I know you've talked about this before, but I want to hear from you uh, what what are the concerns, I guess, with probiotics yeah. use, especially the way they're, they're offered nowadays, uh, you know, kind of over the
2: counter. Um, yeah. Yeah, so in our study, about 30% of our patients were actually taking probiotics. Um, And, um, you know, we can think about why were they taking probiotics? Well, we excluded the patients that had recent antibiotic exposure and just those that, you know, were, were, you know, in, in theory, taking it just for health promotion. Um, when we look at those patients that were taking probiotics, over the counter probiotics, they actually had decreased um, survival with immunotherapy. Again, we come back, correlation does not equal causation, right? Again, why did they feel the need to take these probiotics? But it's certainly room for caution. And now, again, we go back to a mouse model. Now you take that model where you took the um, Patients who had had a complete response to immunotherapy, you do the FMT into the mice, and now you give those mice one of two commonly um, used over the counter probiotics. You lower the diversity of the microbiome and you diminish response to immunotherapy. Mm. And so, again, this non discriminant use of probiotics is definitely something that I would avoid. Now, does that mean that probiotics are always, um, are always going to be bad? I think we need the next generation of really rationally designed probiotics. So let's figure out, you know, and again, it's probably not going to be a single strain. Um, You know, there's really nice work where they, Ken Hondo in Japan, he takes you know, where he has like eight bacteria that he finds induce an immune response. And then there was five other bacteria that seemed to kind of come along with it, but they didn't directly impact the immune response by themselves. But again, he adds those together, those 13 are even more powerful than the eight, even though the five couldn't do anything by themselves. Hmm. And so, you know, now they take that into clinical trials. Um, or there was just recently um, a pu- paper published in Nature Medicine and renal cell carcinoma and presented at ASCO last year. And they did a randomized trial between IpiNivo versus ipinevo um, plus, in this case, a single strain probiotic. Now, interestingly, the primary outcome of that trial was actually, you know, to increase the um, abundance of that particular bacteria in the soul. It did not meet its primary endpoint. Hmm. It actually didn't do that. There were only a few patients where they actually increased it. However, the progression free survival split in that trial was just really remarkable, which is how it got into nature medicine. And so, of course, you know, more investigation and kind of comes back the fecal microbiome is not necessarily what's going um, what's going on at the colonic interface. Right. And so sometimes it's just, you know, there've been other studies with probiotics um, where they do sampling all the way through the GI tract and then look at the feces. And sometimes if you're giving the probiotics and you see an increase in that bacteria, which you would think would be a good thing, it might actually be just because you're shedding it. Hmm. Um, so more, more stuff to come there.
1: I mean, I, I, I think it's probably premature for clinicians to really um use this information, but I know people are interested in you know, within functional medicine, or if you go to an integrative provider that's interested in the microbiome there are um, there are commercial tests that are available. I mean, what are your thoughts with any of that? Because most of us probably don't know enough um or or maybe nobody knows enough to really um you know, use this in a clinical setting yet. But what yeah. are your thoughts with people who say, "Okay, well, obviously this is important." You know, um, and and you can get a test that will tell you, "Hey, you're not you're not um, processing this type of food. You have this abundance of bacteria." Um, I've seen this kind of test before, but it's it's not easy to interpret, um, let alone do something about.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because then the question again: if you're not if you're not processing that type of food, does that mean you shouldn't be eating that type of food or? that you need to eat more of that. And again, I think it's, I think it's just um, I think it's just premature. Um, I think we're, you know, we're, we're using a um, platform that should be research-based at this Mm -hmm. time. And we just can't make decisions on that. Now, what needs to be done, right, is the study of can you personalize this? Can you get that report? And if you intervene on that, and what would that intervention be? Um, then can we improve outcomes? So then it comes is, is it all too premature? This comes back to diet in my mind. Again, high fiber plant-based diet associated, even if we don't shift the needle on immunotherapy outcomes, which is a is a high bar, uh, but one that we're trying. Even if we don't shift it, then we know that we are decreasing risk of secondary malignancies. We are decreasing risk of cardiovascular disease. We are improving longevity and people feel better too. Right. And so that is something that I think is a message that we can go ahead um, and, you know, and put out there.
1: So I want to get into what you talked about with modifying the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and and we talked about fecal transplant which i find fascinating i mean one of the questions though is how you find the right donor because it's so complicated mm-hmm. you know you can look for whatever you want whether somebody is technically quote unquote healthy and thin but if it has such a big impact on potential risk of cancer and other th- you you know how do you know who a good donor is? Is it just somebody yeah. who's a responder to immunotherapy, for example? And then there are other options that are kind of, uh, you know, being researched now with you know more kind of um, targeted uh, strains of bacteria and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. If you could comment on those two things,
2: sure. absolutely. So, uh, so donor selection is um, much more challenging in this space than it is, say, for example, for *C. difficile*, right? So. C. difficile after antibiotics, um, you know, a huge outgrowth of this pathogenic bacteria, and the microbiome becomes profoundly dysbiotic. And so, any run of the mill healthy donor, right, is probably completely sufficient for restoring the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, The question is really, do we know enough about what is, what is the microbiome that's associated with response to immunotherapy to be able to select donors from that? And, you know, what a lot of investigators have done instead is just use the poop from a responder to immunotherapy um, as the donor with the idea that we might not completely understand the microbiome yet, but, you know, this was say a sample also that might've induced responses to immunotherapy in mice mm-hmm. kind of acting as the avatar. And so we don't understand, but let's give them the whole ecosystem and then, um, and then see what happens. So there were actually just two papers that were published, um, in science last year, Using this approach. Um, and so these are patients who are actually refractory to immunotherapy. Um, and they then gave them, they continued on or rechallenged with PD1 immunotherapy, which the response rate to that, if if you just rechallenge in somebody that's refractory is, you know, 10, 12, 15%. Um, they then added fecal microbiota transplant, and both of them saw response rates of around 30%. Wow. Yeah. Now promising. However, these are both phase one studies, right? 10 to 15 patients each primary outcome being safety and engraftment. Um, so if we go back to those things, what is it safe? Yep, yeah. No, no, no badness um, was it, um, did they engraft? And this was actually a big question because again, we're not dealing with a profoundly dysbiotic state like C diff. Yes, they were able to engraft, but then this also gets into this donor effect. Both of these donors had, you know, were complete responders in, in the, um, in the Israeli study, both of the paper, they were complete responders. Um, they both profile their microbiome. Everything looks really good. All of the responders happened to get one particular donors, um, specimen and nobody that got the other donor specimens responded. Now, small study mm-hmm. who knows if that's reproducible, but there is some stuff in the, in like the IBS literature as well about kind of, you know, super donors again, We've got to be able to better define and engraftment.
1: You, you mentioned engraftment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's in a normal patient who doesn't have C diff. It's not a sure bet that they're going to engraft yeah. without giving them some kind of antibiotics or something else. Yeah. That's another hurdle that we have to cross.
3: Yeah.
1: Is are these things starting to penetrate medical school, um, you know, curriculum? I don't know. I don't either. I was just curious. Or in, <laughs> or in oncology fellowships. I know that many fellows and scientists are now really interested. I mean, this is a very hot area yeah. for research. So I would assume yeah. that they're interested. I just don't know how much, you know, this is part of the core curriculum, if anything.
2: Yeah, I don't know. And actually, it's a good question. I don't even know if like within our oncology fellowship. So you don't have, have like a, on you don't have like on them. I mean, I lecture. talk to them all about it in my clinic, but...
1: But they don't. They haven't asked you to give a lecture or something in in the medical
3: school. No,
2: but, Je, but Jen Morgo might have, or somebody okay. else. might <laughs> They could be still getting it. I'm not sure. Well, or maybe they go back and they're like, "Oh my God, that's all McQuaid talks about." <laughs> <laughs> don't to add it to the
1: curriculum. Well, we have a few more minutes, and I just wanted to ask you about uh, you know your your um, about melanoma, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously rates of melanoma are going up worldwide uh, you know, which is a big concern, obviously. Um, first of all, is that all, what is the specific cause? Is that all because of climate change and ultraviolet radiation? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, is there something else that, uh, that we're missing? Cause I don't think we spend more time outdoors than, than yeah. historically people did. Um, so that's my first question.
2: Yeah um so a lot of it i mean the majority of it actually is um you know is uv exposure um it's very very uv linked but the question is why is it rising um so i would say not even so much um climate climate change as the ozone um so there's really good data out of australia yeah. um showing that but even there um sun behaviors and sun protection really matter. So they had rates that were skyrocketing. And they implemented a huge campaign, um, you know, that's taking it down all the way to kind of children's level all the way up to adults about, um, you know, hats and sun shirts and sunscreen. Um, And it was very successful. And their rate then started to decline. Okay. Um, now of course there's a lag, right. But we actually can do that. The other big thing is tanning beds. Right. Um, and so, and that's huge. And especially, you know, that's really kind of our, our, our young women now our older. We have that bimodal thing and then the older people, you know, now, why is it increasing now? Well, people are living longer. Mm. And they've got cumulative damage from a lifetime of sun exposure, you know, of the farmer, of the pilot, or whatever. And so, um, so that will also take a while to decrease. Now, the other part of it is, is that is it, um, you know, partially also, um, is there do we have overdiagnosis? Mm. Um, and so, you know, we certainly want to identify and remove these culprit lesions but most primary melanomas will never end up metastasizing. And so we need to better understand, you know, what are the ones that that will um, and how do we intervene upon, upon those?
1: And then specifically my understanding is that what's worse is like you said, tanning beds or if you sunbathe and you're getting a, a, a high amount of sunshine direct for a short amount of time, that is worse, especially for light-skinned individuals, than Mm -hmm. if you're kind of out playing basketball, you know, regularly, and you kind of have clothes on and you wear, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? There's the chronic versus the acute.
2: Yeah, there's the chronic versus the acute. I mean, it's like, and again, it's a, you know, cutaneous melanoma is a disease of white people. Um, And, um, you know, most of the time when we have People with multiple family members with melanoma—they're very rarely, as a genetic component, extraordinarily rare. Um, you know, instead, it's that they all have the same complexion, like mine, right? And then grew up, you know, at the beach, yeah, and with the sun. And the, and a lot of it too is is kind of that early sun mm-hmm. exposure too. And so we really need to watch our kids.
1: And so what is, just for people listening, what's your recommendation for sunscreen? You know, it's interesting. I live in Arizona. You're in Texas. I see a lot of uh, people with low vitamin D levels, um, Mm. which is interesting. So I think we tell everybody that they're supposed to wear sunscreen and stuff, but they probably need to supplement with vitamin D because now they're lacking the healthy sun exposure because of the extra ultraviolet radiation we're exposed to. So my right. understanding is that the uh, emphasis is on sun uh, sun protection, and then if you have to take vitamin D, go take vitamin D uh, supplementation, yeah. et cetera.
2: Yeah, and I think that a lot of that too comes that again, you know, when we go back to to causality, um, you know, the link between UV damage and skin cancer is a much more established link. Um, then yes, vitamin D is again associated with, you know, many aspects of health. Um, but does vitamin D supplementation mm-hmm. actually then, you know, or say improving vitamin D with going out into the sun, does that actually decrease risk of disease is a little bit, um, a little bit controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, sunscreen, um, Mineral based, chemical based, both fine. I prefer mineral based. um, But the reason I actually prefer it more than anything is because it is so thick um, that you've really got to, like, right? You've got to rub it in, slather it on. There's no way to apply just a bit of mineral based um, because you really have to rub it in to mm-hmm. get it, you know, to get it there. That's giving you better um, overall coverage. And so what I do is, um, you know, if I'm going to be out in the sun, then I have a base that is that, that is not going to be very easy to reapply while I'm out at the beach. And so then, you know, that's where kind of my spray, the spray stuff comes in. Spray stuff again, isn't bad. And if that's what you, if that's what you will use then um then use that, but you have to really, really, really make sure that you're getting a good um application there. And just um, and then the biggest thing is actually that reapplication. So I don't care. So again, that, you know, when you start getting up to the SPF of 70, 80, hundred, mm-hmm. the stuff is gonna wash or sweat off before you ever get that extended time. So you're better off like with an SPF 50, but reapplying every you know hour to hour and a half, um, if you're in the sun, especially if you're sweating or
1: and, swimming. And how much of a difference does sunscreen make, or sun, it's, mm-hmm. sun health? Like, how much can you reduce the risk of melanoma with the proper <sighs> you hygiene? Know what I, I uh... do, we know. We
2: should know that number. No, no, no. We do. We do. I just, I'm, I. If I give you a number, I'm going to make it up. But That's it's okay. A, it's a huge amount. <laughs>
1: It is a huge amount. <laughs> okay, well, look, yeah. I I appreciate uh, everything you're doing. Um, I think that you know your work and your colleagues' work in this field. You mentioned Cell and Science multiple times this last hour, and those are some of the you know uh, journals that uh, we need to be um, getting into in, in this field to really look at the basic science of some of the mechanisms of what we're talking about and then there's so much crossover between what we're talking about and then you know conventional medical oncology and therapeutics and then lifestyle yeah. it just brings everything together um and and then there's all these applications so i think yeah. it's super exciting and is is why most of us are interested in this area as well
2: yeah yeah now i think the other the i think the other key part of that is that none of us know all of it and, you know, now when we're looking at, I I, I am not, I'm a melanoma medical oncologist. I am not a dietitian
3: mm-hmm.
2: I am not a microbiologist and I am not an immunologist and I am not a nutritional epidemiologist. And so we have, you know, phenomenal collaborators that we work with and a team approach um, to be able to drive that forward. And I actually, I absolutely think that that's what's critical, um, you know, to hopefully, you know, practice changing discoveries.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today.
2: Absolutely.